Hello everyone, welcome to Tiff Totally, Tiffany Leonard here, and the final part of sitcoms, sitcoms, and more sitcoms. Um, but before we begin, I just want to say I realized that I did my so-called life as part of part two, and that's not a sitcom, it is a drama series, but when I was doing, you know, putting this together... I never realized that it wasn't a sitcom, and then by the time I put it as part of this project and started watching it myself, it was kind of too late. So, it's part of the sitcoms, it's not a sitcom, but it is still a great show, um, you know, and it deserves a lot more credit than the show ever, ever got, so... Yeah, so I realized that it is not a sitcom. I just wanted to put that out there. But by the time I did realize it when I was doing this project, it was too little too late. So it's a part of it, but it's not a sitcom. But it is a great show regardless. Um, so to start off the last part, we're going to start with Ugly Betty, which was on from 2006 to 2010. Betty Suarez is a quirky 22-year-old Mexican-American woman from Queens, New York, who is sorely lacking in fashion sense. She is known for her adult braces, rather unusual wardrobe choices, sweet nature, and slight naivety. She is abruptly thrust into a different world when she lands a job at Mode, a trendy high-fashion magazine based in Manhattan that is part of the publishing empire Mead Publications, owned by the wealthy Bradford Mead. Bradford's son, Daniel, has been installed as editor-in-chief of Mode following the death of Faye Summers, Bradford's longtime mistress. Bradford hires the inexperienced Betty as his womanizing son's newest personal assistant to curb his habit of sleeping with his assistants. As time goes by, Betty and Daniel become friends and help each other navigate their individual, professional, and personal lives. Life at Mode is made difficult for both Betty and Daniel by their co-workers. Their most serious threat comes from creative director Wilhelmina Slater, a vindictive schemer who devises numerous plots to steal Daniel's job and seize control of the Mead Empire. In addition, Wilhelmina's loyal assistant Mark St. James and Mode receptionist Amanda Tannen continually mock and humiliate Betty for her lackluster physical appearance, awkward nature, and initial lack of taste in fashion, though they both ultimately warm to Betty in later seasons. However, not everyone at Mode is against Betty. She gains loyal friends in Scottish seamstress Christina McKinney and nerdy accountant Henry Grubstick. She also receives strong support from her father, Ignacio, older sister, Hilda, and nephew, Justin. The cast and characters of Ugly Betty include America Ferreira as Betty Suarez, Eric Mabius as Daniel Mead, Vanessa Williams as Wilhelmina Slater, Tony Plana as Ignacio Suarez, Ana Ortiz as Hilda Suarez, Becky Newton as Amanda Tannen, Michael Yuri as Mark St. James, Mark Indelicato as Justin Suarez, Ashley Jensen, Jensen as Christina McKinney, Rebecca Ramjan as Alexis Mead, Alan Dale as Bradford Mead, 
Kevin Sussman as Walter, Judith Light as Claire Mead, Christopher Gorham as Henry Grubstick, and Daniel Eric Gold as Matt Hartley. On January 27, 2010, ABC announced that Ugly Betty would cease production after the fourth season finale, which aired in April. We've mutually come to the difficult decision to make this Ugly Betty's final season, said executive producer Silvio Horta and ABC Entertainment president Steve McPherson in a joint statement. The show had struggled in the ratings in the U.S., falling from an average 8.1 million to 5.3 million viewers between the third and fourth seasons. The show has been parodied and referenced in other television shows. In the October 2006 episode of Saturday Night Live, cast member Fred Armisen spoofed the character of Betty by playing a lookalike named Fugly Betsy. Not to be outdone, a February 2007 episode of Mad TV has Nicole Parker playing Ellen DeGeneres, interviewing an actress on her talk show who plays Ugly Betty, with Selma Hayek, played by Lisa Nova, always pointing out how ugly she is. The Ugly Betty actress, played by Krista Flanagan, claims it is only makeup and costume but is ignored. Krista later reprised her Betty role in the poorly reviewed parody film Meet the Spartans. American singer Katy Perry, in music video last Friday night TGIF, spoofed the character of Ugly Betty by playing a lookalike named Kathy Beth Terry. In April of 2007, the 2007 TV Land Awards parodied the series with a spoof aptly titled Ugly Betty White, with White playing Betty Suarez, Charo playing Hilda, Eric Estrada playing Ignacio, Joan Collins playing Wilhelmina, Peter Scolari playing Alexis, and George Hamilton playing Daniel. Thanks to her performance in that parody, the producers cast White as a guest star in the second season. Even the cast poke fun at their alter egos. In October of 2006, three of the series' cast members appearing in their characters, Ferreira as Betty, Mabius as Daniel, and Newton as Amanda, gave New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick a makeover to make him look more like quarterback Tom Brady in a spoof that was featured on ESPN's Monday Night Countdown. The program was also referenced in other shows, most notably in Up All Night, the February 2007 installment of the NBC sitcom 30 Rock, in which Liz Lemon, played by Tina Fey, says this would have worked on Ugly Betty. When she fails to crawl out a door without being seen, the scene was patterned after the Ugly Betty episode Swag, in which Betty crawled through a fashion show. Hayek also made an appearance on 30 Rock in the third season. In the episode of the TV sitcom Scrubs, Christopher Turk, played by Donald Faison, has a picture taken of Ugly Betty with his daughter, only for it to be torn up by best friend and main character John Dorian. In March 2009, a spoof of Ugly Betty called Ugly Yeti was made by Take 180. Take 180, like ABC, is a Disney company and the parody was featured on ABC's website. Ugly Betty has also been referenced in television shows in the United Kingdom. In the series finale, a BBC One hotel-based drama series Hotel Babylon aired in August 2009, 
Ben Truman, played by Michael Obiora, asks fellow desk, front desk employees Melanie Hughes, played by Amy Nuttall, how long have you had those ugly Betty braces, while giving Hughes a makeover, to which she replies, about 18 months. In a 2010 episode of medical drama series Holby City, which also airs on BBC One, Jack Naylor, played by Rosie Marcel, refers to a patient as the one who wears the ugly Betty braces. And in 2013, Ortiz returned to television in the lifetime dramedy Devious Maids, which, like Ugly Betty, was also based on a telenovela. In this series, Ortiz plays Marisol Duarte, a newly hired maid who is determined to find out who framed her son for the murder of a maid. Ironically, it was revealed in the series' seventh episode taking a message that Marisol's true identity was that of a professor and her real last name was Suarez. It is not known if this was done intentionally, but it does give Ortiz the homage of playing characters with the same last name on two different shows. Following the show's debut, the main characters, especially the title character, quickly became fixtures in the lexicon of pop media culture, with the show and its characters getting referenced in parodies, news media stories, and art imitating art imitating life situations. The show's impact on issues and culture also attracted the attention of the United States Congress, where on January 17, 2007, California Congresswoman Hilda Solis saluted Ferreira on both her Golden Globe win and for bringing a positive profile to the Latin and Hispanic communities. In addition to that recognition, on May 8, 2007, Star America Ferreira was, a, was honored by Time on the magazine's annual list of the 100 Most Influential People. The event took place at New York's Lincoln Center, and the actress was recognized for defying stereotypes with the show. The success of Ugly Betty and how it dealt with body imaging among women in general inspired a series of reports on Entertainment Tonight in which reporter Vanessa Manillo went undercover in a fat suit to see if women were discriminated on the basis of appearance. LGBTQ awareness groups like GLAAD have also noted the positive impact the show has had, particularly in regard to the coming-out storyline of Betty's teenage nephew, Justin. And from Screen Ranch, written by Mariana Fernandez, Ugly Betty, 10 Hidden Details About the Main Characters Everyone Missed. Sure, it's easy to remember the grand scheme of things, but exactly how much attention did you pay to the show? It's definitely been a minute since two-time Golden Globe winning show Ugly Betty left our screens. Originally airing from 2006 to 2010, the series represented a fresh and interesting departure from what audiences were used to witnessing when it came down to fashion-related television. Inspired by the 1999 Colombian soap opera Yo Soy Betty La Fea, the inclusive casts and compelling narratives that expanded beyond the realms of fashion kept fans hooked to the screen. Um, and Yo Soy Betty La Fea, for those of you that don't <laughs> speak Spanish, it is I Am Ugly Betty. 
And exactly because it had such a wonderful impact on viewers, Ugly Betty is a show worth revisiting at every turn. Sure, it's easy to remember the grand scheme of things, but exactly how much attention did you pay to the show? Let's take a trip down memory lane and look at 10 details about Ugly Betty, Ugly Betty that everyone missed. Not so Mexican. Saying that the show simply wouldn't be the same without America Ferreira's take on the main character, Betty Suarez, is the understatement of the century. Betty made the show what it was and imprinted its unique essence on a television world not usually dominated by ethnic minorities. But it was the supporting cast that truly knocked it out of the park, particularly when it comes down to the entire Suarez family. Curiously enough, though, while they're supposed to be from Mexico, none of the actors playing the Suarez family members are of Mexican ethnicity. America Ferreira is Honduran, Tony Plana is Cuban, Ana Ortiz is Puerto Rican Irish, and Mark Indelicado is Puerto Rican Italian. The Mode Issue Mode Magazine represents the stage where most of the action takes place throughout the entire run of the show. No other environment would suit a show about fashion quite like a fashion magazine. And what better name to give this outstanding publication, without any rip-offs, than Mode? Well, curiously enough, the name isn't what you would call 100% original. Turns out that, once upon a time, a magazine called Mode actually existed, and it was aimed towards plus-size women. But not to worry. The magazine actually ceased publication in 2001, years before Ugly Betty even premiered. Plus, the similarities pretty much begin and end with the name. Faye Summers rings a bell. How many characters out there can brag about the fact that they had a major impact on their respective television shows without ever actually making an appearance? Such is the case of Faye Summers, the previous editor-in-chief of Mode magazine, and quite the horrible, manipulative person at that. Well, in case you've been wondering for all these years just why her name seems to ring a bell, that's because Faye Summers' character is based on Vogue magazine editor-in-chief Anna Wintour. Even in the few glimpses we get of her, Faye, Faye's look is a clear nod to Wintour's signature style. Eat your heart out, the devil wears Prada. I see your book. In many ways, Betty Suarez was the role that put America Ferreira on the map. It not only granted her several nominations for prestigious awards, but it also helped her snatch the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an actress in a television series, comedy or musical in 2007, not too shabby of an accomplishment. But prior to landing the role that would turn her into a star, America already had quite the resume as an actress, including the movie Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, based on the book by the same name. If you look closely, Betty's nightstand on the show has the novel upon which the movie was based on her nightstand. The City of Angels there is no shortage of iconic television shows that paid homage to one of the most beautiful and bustling cities in the world, New York. From Sex in the City to Gossip Girl, many series over the years were conceived around the idea of writing a love letter to this incredible place. And as we're told from the very beginning, Ugly Betty unravels in New York as well. Except, it's not. 
while viewers are supposed to believe the show is, in fact, taking place in the Big Apple, the first two seasons were actually shot in Los Angeles. By using stock footage of New York, the show was able to fool fans. However, from the third season onwards, Ugly Betty relocated to the iconic city where it belongs. What's in a name? Michael Urie's rendition of Mark was one of the things that made the show so great in the first place. Even though all the props go to America Ferreira for bringing the character of Betty Suarez to life, the supporting cast once again needs to be mentioned and commended for its stellar performance. The most interesting thing about Mark is his name. In one episode of the show, it's shown to be Mark St. James. However, in another episode, it's revealed to be Mark Wiener. Apparently, in a deleted scene that didn't make the cut, Betty asks him about his original last name, Wiener, which he admits to having changed by saying, I had to change it. A gay kid named Wiener? I wanted to beat myself up. The Anne Bolin Cameo we bet that the last thing you saw expected to see on a show like Ugly Betty, set in 21st century New York, where the main characters work in a fashion magazine, was of reference to 16th century English royalty. But alas, the show did nothing better than surprising its fans, whether it was in the form of dramatic revelations or subtle references. One of Betty's signature pieces from the show is the necklace with the bee made out of pearls. As it turns out, this is an exact replica of the necklace worn by Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife, and later by her daughter and Queen of England, Elizabeth I. Wonder what history buffs noticed this. The Older Sis For many episodes, Ugly Betty tortured fans with the mysterious figure of the bandaged women. There was quite a lot of suspicion surrounding this particular character, and most people put their money on the not-so-deceased, after-all, Faye Summers. Cued the surprise faces when it was revealed this was actual Daniel's transgender sister, Alexis. Yes, the drama was real, and no one was quite expecting it. This was one of the instances where everyone realized the show was actually inspired by a soap opera. But while on screen, she is supposed to be older than Daniel. In real life, Eric Mabius is actually over a year older than Rebecca Ramjan. Is this my house? The Suarez family home was one of the staples of the show, right behind the headquarters of Mode magazine. One of the reasons fans were so quick to warm up to the characters was due to the cozy feelings that transpired from this home and the tight-knit family that lived there. However, Betty, Justin, Ignacio, and Hilda didn't actually have a home. What we saw during the first two seasons of the show was actually a set and the outside was just a wall. It kind of kills the vibe, no? Don't worry, soon as the show relocated to New York City, the Suarez family got to film in the house they deserved. And there's something about Justin. The character of Justin was incredibly important in the sense that it portrayed the journey of a young boy discovering and coming to terms with his sexuality. This journey included a series of heartwarming moments starring the Suarez family and meant quite a bit to the creator of the show, Silvio Horta. Horta, an openly gay man, actually stated in an interview with USA Today that he saw a lot of himself in the character of Justin, which makes Justin's happy ending even more beautiful. And you know, 
I have so much appreciation when, and it's so much more common now, but like even just 10, 11 years ago when, you know, Ugly Betty was on, you know, uh, 15 years ago when it started, whatever, you know, it wasn't really that common to have a gay character. And now these days, it seems like every single show, there's somebody, you know, especially just because of the world we're in today, there's some character that's dealing with, you know, being gay or transgender or, you know, non-binary or even, you know, dealing with a lot of the, you know, Black Lives Matter and the Asian, um, you know, the non-Asian hate um, and even with a lot of religious um, like groups and things like that. It's so much more common in TV shows now because it's something that's so important that we need to be aware of in our world. But even though it was important back then as well, it's something much more, uh, it wasn't as common and it was more eye-opening back then, I feel like, especially when it was the younger generation, because that's, the group that we really need to support the most. I mean, we need to support everybody within that type of community, but especially the young ones, because they feel, I think, more confused and unwanted more so than an older person. So it's so important to spread that awareness in TV, whether it's now or back then. And I think watching shows from back then and relaying those messages sends more of a message today. So another show that, again, like my so-called life, and this one's actually a sitcom, first of all, Freaks and Geeks, which was on from 1999 to 2000, it did not get enough credit and it should have lasted longer and i i feel like this show is so especially for me it's so relatable because i feel like all throughout school i wasn't very geeky i was more nerdy because i i wasn't like one of the smart kids i mean i wasn't dumb by any means but i like to read like I would rather read and, you know, quietly, like, work on my homework in class versus, you know, not doing what I was supposed to. And reading was like, I always had a book with me to read if I had the extra time to read it. And I was definitely considered a freak. So I related to this show so much, and I I haven't watched it in quite some time, but it's a show I definitely feel like, I mean, if anything, it deserves a comeback um, or a remake because it's so, so relatable. I mean, more so today than back then. So, Freaks and Geeks is an American teen comedy drama television series created by Paul Feig and executive producer Judd Apatow that aired on NBC during the 99-2000 television season. The show is set in a suburban high school in Detroit during 1980-81. to The theme of Freaks and Geeks reflects the sad, hilarious unfairness of teen life. 
with little success when it first aired due to an erratic episode schedule and conflicts between the creators and NBC, the series was canceled after airing 12 out of the 18 episodes. The series became a cult classic and Judd Apatow continued the show's legacy by incorporating the actors in future productions. The series has appeared in numerous lists of the greatest television shows of all time, including List by Time, Entertainment Weekly, TV Guide, and Rolling Stone. It launched several of its young actors' careers, such as James Franco, Seth Rogen, Jason Siegel, Busy Phillips, John Francis Daly, Martin Starr, Sam Levin, and Linda Cardinelli. Teenage Lindsay Weir and her younger brother Sam attend William McKinley High School during the 1980-1981 school year. The show is set in the town of Chippewa, Michigan, a fictional suburb of Detroit named after Chippewa Valley High School, which series creator Paul Feig attended. Lindsay joins a group of friends that are referred to as the Freaks, Daniel Desario, Ken Miller, Nick Andopoulos, and Kim Kelly. Sam's friends constitute the Geeks, Neil Schwieber, and Bill Haverchuk. The Weir parents, Harold and Jean, are featured in every episode. Millie Kentner, Lindsay's nerdy and highly religious former best friend, is a recurring character, as is Cindy Sanders, the popular cheerleader on whom Sam has a crush. Lindsay finds herself attempting to transform her life as an academically proficient student, star mathlete, and young girl into a rebellious teenager who hangs out with troubled slackers. Her relationships with her new friends and the friction they cause with her parents and with her own self-image form one central strand of the show. The other follow Sam and his group of geeky friends as they navigate a different part of the social universe and try to fit in. The main cast of Freaks and Geeks is Linda Cardellini as Lindsay Weir, John Francis Daly as Sam Weir, James Franco as Daniel Desario, Sam Levin as Neil Schweiber, Seth Rogen as Ken Miller, Jason Siegel as Nick Andopoulos, Martin Starr as Bill Haverchuk, Becky Ann Baker as Jean Weir, Joe Flaherty as Harold Weir, and Busy Phillips as Kim Kelly, credited after titles as also starring. A few special guest stars and cameo appearances include Alexandra Breckenridge, Kevin Corrigan, Matt Zucri, Alexander Gold, Rashida Jones, David Kochner, David Krumholtz, Shia LaBeouf, Leslie Mann, Ben Stiller, and Jason Schwartzman. One of the cited reasons for its early cancellation was its inability to gain an audience due to its erratic scheduling and poor time slots, competing with the high-rated Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. The producers created a website for the series, but NBC would not share its URL because they didn't want people to know the internet existed. They were worried about losing viewers to it, as explained by Judd Apatow. Freaks and Geeks was only averaging under 7 million viewers, while other NBC series such as Frasier and Friends were averaging over 14 million viewers each. 
NBC and the directors of Freaks and Geeks did not have the same vision for the series. After the network picked up the Freaks and Geeks pilot, Garth Anseer replaced the old NBC network's president. Anseer didn't understand public school life and its relevance because he went to a boarding school and then on to Princeton. Creator Paul Feig expressed the irony of the situation as everyone involved wanted Freaks and Geeks to be a success, but the network didn't understand the concept of realistically showcasing life as ordinary teenagers. Jake Caston and Judd Apatow had multiple arguments with the network concerning lack of victories in the script and that the characters needed to be cool. The writers wanted to produce something that would represent the average high school experience, but the network wanted to produce something that would make high school seem cool. Because the network did not think the series would be a success, they let the writers add things to the script that they wouldn't have if they thought the show would resurface the next season, like the use of the phrase ambiguous genitalia. Apatow said in 2014 that everything I've done, in a way, is revenge for the people who canceled Freaks and Geeks. In 2001, several of the actors featured in Freaks and Geeks appeared in a new Judd Apatow College half-hour comedy, Undeclared, which aired on Fox Network. Apatow fought with the network to include Freaks and Geeks actors, but the network only picked up Seth Rogen, who was already committed to the show as a writer, as a regular cast member. However, Jason Siegel became a recurring character, and Sam Levin, Busy Phillips, and Natasha Melnick guest starred in multi-episode arcs, as did prominent Freaks and Geeks guest star Steve Banos, who played McKinley High math teacher Mr. Frank Kowchevsky, and David Krumholtz, who played Neil's older brother Barry Schwieber. Martin Starr was prominent in another episode, and a scene with Sarah Hagen was shot, although it was cut for television broadcast. The show was also canceled during its first season. And some facts from Mental Floss, written by Amanda Green. John Francis Daly, played by or Sam Weir, was the only cast member playing a character his or her age. Daly was 14 in real life and on TV. Linda Cardellini, then 24, played his 16-year-old sister, Lindsay. Sam Levine, Neil Schwieber, Martin Starr, Bill Haverchuk, and Seth Rogen, Ken Miller, were all 17. Jason Siegel, Nick Andopoulos, was 19. Busy Phillips, Kim Kelly, and James Franco, Daniel Desario, were 20 and 21, respectively. The camera crew was under strict orders to make scenes look drab. Freaks and Geeks takes place in a fictional Chippewa, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. The crew used green and gray tinted lights to achieve so-called Midwestern colors on the show set in California. They also avo avoided shooting outdoors whenever possible. Most of the show's budget was spent on music. The show's 18 episodes featured snippets of more than 120 songs, including Joan Jett's Bad Reputation, in the opening credits. It set the tone for the show, but it wasn't cheap. Clearing songs by Van Halen, Kiss, and The Who, just to name a few, required a lot of paperwork and ate up much of the show's budget. It also later delayed the DVD release. 
Fox removed most of the music when it picked up Freaks and Geeks reruns to avoid paying extra fees. One song that got away, Neil Young's Only Love Can Break Your Heart. When producers couldn't get the licensing rights for episode 15, they replaced it with Dean Martin's You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You. Everything on the show actually happened to Feig or one of the show's writers. To jumpstart the writing process, Feig had writers fill out questionnaires about their own experiences in high school. Questions included, what was the best thing that happened to you in high school? What's the most humiliating thing that happened to you in high school? What's the first sexual thing you ever did? The answers were used to create the show. Well, except for episode 17, The Little Things, that was inspired by The Howard Stern Show. Spoiler alert, neither Feig nor any of the writers had ever dated someone with ambiguous genitalia like Ken Seth Rogen did in episode 17. Instead, Judd Apatow got the idea while listening to Howard Stern. At this point, everyone was pretty sure Freaks and Geeks wouldn't be renewed. Apatow later told Vanity Fair, in a way, it was a fuck you to NBC, like now we're going to get really ambitious and aggressive with storylines that you would never approve if the show had a chance of surviving. Timing, in this case, bad timing, was everything. Freaks and Geeks premiered in September of 1999 in one of NBC's deadliest time slots, Saturdays at 8 p.m. To make things worse, it wasn't aired continuously. The show was taken off air during the World Series in October and later put in a new time slot against ABC's then Red Hot Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Reviews were great, but Freaks and Geeks couldn't keep an audience. The producers created a website for the show, hoping that it would keep fans engaged and aware of upcoming episodes. The big wigs at NBC refused to share the URL on ads because they didn't want to pr promote internet use over watching TV. The show's finale was written in films in the middle of the season. NBC originally ordered 13 episodes of Freaks and Geeks. With the threat of cancellation looming, Feig wrote and directed the finale, Discos and Dragons, so that the show could end on a strong note. Then NBC ordered five more episodes, so that pushed the finale forward a few weeks. Three of these episodes never aired until Fox syndicated the show. Freaks and Geeks was a critical darling, but won only one Emmy for outstanding casting in a comedy series. Casting is one of the creative arts Emmy categories, awarded in a ceremony held separately from all the acting awards. Paul Feig was only nominated for outstanding writing for a comedy series, both in 2000 for the series pilot and in 2001 for the finale, but he came up short both times. Speaking of casting, here are a few ways the show could have been very different. Jesse Eisenberg, later of The Social Network, was nearly cast as Sam Weir. Busy Phillips, Kim Kelly, originally auditioned for the role of Lindsay Weir. A few other almost, Lizzie Kaplan of Masters of Sex, auditioned for the roles of Kim Kelly and Lindsay. Lauren Ambrose of Six Feet Under, also auditioned for Lindsay. And Shia LaBeouf tried out for the part of Neil Schweiber. NBC pressured the show's producers to stunt cast celebrities in small roles to attract viewers. Britney Spears was one suggestion. They refused.
the cast was encouraged to pursue their own writing. During some downtime on set, Fegan Apatow showed James Franco how they brainstormed and wrote scenes. Jason Siegel and Seth Rogen improvised new jokes when they rehearsed on weekends. Instead of taking GED correspondence courses while filming, Rogen started writing his first screenplay, Superbad. And... Feig and Apatow didn't team up again until Bridesmaids in 2011. It became the highest-grossing R-rated female comedy ever, not to mention the highest-grossing film of Apatow's very successful career. Now the two are said to be working on another romantic comedy to be written and directed by Feig. You know, Freaks and Geeks, it truly is great. And it sucks that I feel like even though a lot of shows, like these days especially, may have like lower like viewers, I think DVR and streaming services especially help with that these days. But, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have that. So, you know, if a show wasn't doing well, unfortunately, it suffered and would most likely get canceled. Now, I think even when a show is doing poorly, they give it a second season just to see if DVR ratings go up or streaming ratings go up. So I think, you know, it helps a lot that we have those options these days. So this next show... You know, I didn't, I've seen a few episodes of this show and I wasn't particularly a fan of it. However, I am a fan of the movie that it's based off of, Three Men and a Baby. Uh, this show is Baby Daddy, which was on from 2012 to 2017. And it's an American sitcom created by Dan Berenson that premiered on June 20th, 2012 on ABC Family, now Freeform. The series follows Ben, a man in his 20s, who gets the surprise of his life when a one-night stand leaves his baby at his doorstep. Ben decides to raise his daughter with the help of his brother Danny and his two close friends Riley and Tucker and his sometimes overbearing mother Bonnie. The show was inspired by the American film Three Men and a Baby, which was released in 1987. Six seasons were produced in total, with the 100th and final episode airing on May 22, 2017. Ben Wheeler is a 20-something bachelor suddenly becoming a father when his baby daughter Emma is left at his doorstep. With the help of his overbearing mother Bonnie, his older brother Danny, and his two best friends Tucker and Riley, Ben works to turn his life around in order to provide for his daughter. The main cast and characters of Baby Daddy are Benjamin Bon Jovi, Ben Wheeler, played by Jean-Luc Bilodeau, the lead character of the series. He was living the life of a bachelor as a bartender in New York City with his buddy Tucker and his older brother Danny. His life was turned upside down when he opened his apartment door to find a baby girl left at his door by, doorstep one night. The baby turned out to be his daughter, Emma. At the beginning of the series, Ben's job was the same throughout the series, with the difference in season four when he and Danny became owners of the bar. He and Riley, next-door neighbor and childhood friend of Ben, dated briefly twice. 
The relationship fails because Ben didn't live up to Riley's expectations. Eventually, it is revealed how strong Danny's feelings are for Riley. Ben initially denies this until Bonnie intervenes and points out that Danny has loved Riley nearly his whole life and tries to get the two together. Throughout season 6, Ben constantly tries to find Elle, a girl he has fallen for after seeing her three times in the same day during the season 5 finale. In the series finale, Elle is seen looking for Ben throughout the series as well. At the conclusion of the series finale, Elle walks in to deliver Riley's son and Ben immediately recognizes Elle and they end up going out. Tucker Thurgood Marshall Dobbs, played by Taj Maori, is Ben's best friend and roommate. Tucker is friendly towards everybody as long as they don't eat his food. Tucker has a love-hate and somewhat teasing relationship with Mrs. Wheeler. Ben encouraged Tucker to drop out of law school to pursue a career in television. When his father, Marshall Dobbs, played by Phil Morris, finds out about that finds out about this he is at first furious and disowns tucker mr dobbs later approves of tucker's career in the same episode tucker has multiple relationships throughout the series but ultimately ends up with sandra a talkative fellow tenant whose voice is extremely shrill Daniel Mellencamp, Danny Wheeler, played by Derek Thieler, is Ben's older brother who is a professional hockey player for the New York Rangers. His younger brother looks up to him and is sometimes envious of Danny being better at everything. It is mentioned many times that Danny is their mother's favorite son, so much so that Mrs. Wheeler sometimes says she only has one son. In season four, Danny purchases Ben's place of employment, Bar on B, for Ben. Danny has also been in love with Riley ever since he was six. Danny and Riley eventually end up together in seasons five. In the season five finale, it is revealed that Riley is pregnant after Danny and Riley become very serious. During season six, Danny and Riley get married and have a son, Puck. Bonnie and Walker Nay Propinski, previously Wheeler, played by Melissa Peterman, is Ben and Danny's mother. She is a happy, outgoing, loud, and dramatic person who has a kind heart. Bonnie loves her kids and her granddaughter more than anything. She loves to drink. Her favorite wine is Chardonnay. It is hinted many times throughout the series that Bonnie might have a drinking problem. Bonnie has an on-and-off relationship with Brad Walker since Season 3. She later marries Brad in an elevator. She had originally wanted to be a model, but those plans changed after having Danny. She later became a realtor. Bonnie is in love with Bon Jovi, so much so that she named her second son Benjamin Bon Jovi Wheeler. She describes herself as a beautiful young woman with goals and ambitions. Riley Perrin, played by Chelsea Kane, is Ben's close friend and Danny's best friend since they were little. Although Riley dates Ben on and off during the first few seasons of the show, she falls for Danny towards the end of season four and subsequently begin a relationship with him. 
During the season 5 season finale, it's revealed that Riley is pregnant. Danny and Riley get married in season 6 and she gives birth to their son in the series finale. It has been said that she was extremely overweight in high school and in the season 3 episode Romancing the Phone, she says she lost 90 pounds. When they were kids, her nickname was Riginter and could beat up boys, enjoyed watching professional wrestling with Danny, and played field hockey as well as street hockey. She is highly intelligent. Despite having some difficulty with the LSATs, she did well enough to get accepted into law school. Riley is also extremely competitive. She has liked Ben ever since they were young, but only Danny initially knew. In the episode Send in the Clowns, it is revealed that her aunt was her real mother. In the episode House of Cards, she mentions a sister, presumably her cousin in reality, whom she claims to hate. And Emma Wheeler, played by Allie Louise and Su- Suzanne Allen Hartman in season one, Mila and Zoe Besky in season two, Ember and Harper Husack in season three, Sura and Kaylee Harris in seasons four through six, is Ben's daughter who was left at his door by a one night stand. Angela, Emma's mother, and Ben went on their went on with their lives until she realized she was pregnant and gave birth to the child. Deciding that her acting career was more important than raising a child, she left Emma at Ben's front door and gave him full custody of her. A few recurring characters include Peter Port as Brad Walker, Lacey Chabert as Dr. Amy Shaw, Matt Dallas as Fitch Douglas, Christopher O'Shea as Philip Farlow, Mallory Jensen as Georgie Farlow, Mimi Giannopoulos as Angela, Grace Phipps as Megan, Rancha Katu as Sandra, Krista B. Allen as Rhonda, Jonna Walsh as Zoe, Daniela Monet as Sam Safi, and Jace Whitaker as Carter. Okay, so with these next few shows, we're going to kind of go way back, uh, back to like the 50s, 60s, that kind of era. So these are definitely some classics that your grandmothers have probably told you about. Um, But we're going to start off with somebody that's a legend. She was great friends with Lucille Ball, and sometimes she would often get mistaken for Vicki Lawrence. Uh, the Carol Burnett Show was on from 1967 to 1978. The show originally ran on CBS from September 1967 to March 1978 for 279 episodes and again with nine episodes in fall 1991. The series originated in CBS Television Studio Studio 33 and won 25 Primetime Emmy Awards. In 2013, TV Guide ranked The Carol Burnett Show number 17 on its list of the 60 greatest shows of all time, and in 2007, it was included on the list of, of Time's 100 Best TV Shows of All Time. 
after the original run ended, material from 1972 to 1977, season 6 through 10, was repackaged as a half-hour series known as Carol Burnett and Friends, which has aired in various syndicated outlets more or less continuously since the original series ended. Because of this format, material from the first five seasons did not air outside of their original run until 2019 when MeTV acquired the rights to these earlier seasons and began airing them. The cast has periodically reunited for various one-off specials and short appearances, and several members of the cast went on to star in Mama's Family from 1983 to 1990, a half-hour situation comedy based on a sketch series from The Carol Burnett Show. By 1967, Carol Burnett had been a popular veteran of television for 12 years, having made her first appearances in 1955 on The Paul Winchell Show and sitcom Stanley starring the comedian Buddy Hackett. In 1959, she became a regular supporting cast member on the CBS TV variety series The Gary Moore Show. Departing the series in the spring of 62, she pursued other projects in film, Broadway productions, and headlining her own television specials. Burnett signed a contract with CBS for 10 years, which required her to do two guest appearances and a special a year. Within the first five years of this contract, she had the option to push the button, a phrase the programming executives used, and be put on the air in 31-hour pay-or-play variety shows. After discussion with her husband, Joe Hamilton, in the last week of the fifth year of the contract, Burnett decided to call the head of CBS, Michael Dan, and exercise the clause. Dan, explaining that variety is a man's genre, offered Burnett a sitcom called Here's Agnes. Burnett had no interest in doing a sitcom, and because of the contract, CBS was obliged to give Burnett her own variety show. The, prop, the popular and long-running variety show that resulted not only established Burnett as a television superstar, but it also made her regular supporting cast household names. It was frequently nominated for Emmys for Best Variety Series and won three times. Carol Burnett did many sketches over the years, and... Um, there's a short list with brief descriptions of the show's well-known characters along with their sketches. As the Stomach Turns, a soap opera parody taking place in the fictional town of Canoga Falls with Burnett as the main character Marion Clayton. Carol and Sis, Burnett as Carol and Lawrence, Vicki Lawrence as her sister Chris with Corman as Carol's husband Roger. Charwoman, Burnett's signature character, an unnamed charwoman, most often in a musical number, whose animated image has been used in the opening credits and also in the opening and closing credits of Carol Burnett and Friends. The family, Burnett and Corman as Eunice and Ed Higgins, a married couple with Lawrence portraying Eunice's very difficult mother, Mama Thelma Harper. Nora Desmond, Burnett as a has-been silent film actress and Corman as her bald, dutiful butler, Max, in the takeoff of the 1950 film Sunset Boulevard. The Oldest Man, Tim Conway as Duane Tottleberry, an old, slow-moving man, usually in various situations involving Corman being annoyed with his lack of speed.
VIP Corman as F. Lee Carmen, who interviews famous celebrities par- par- parodied by Burnett, such as Julia Wilde instead of Julia Child, Shirley Dimple instead of Shirley Temple, and Mae East instead of Mae West, as well as other guests such as a nudist. Movie parodies, spoofs of popular movies, most notably Went with the Wind, Others included Jowls, Mildred Fierce, The Lavender and Pimpernel, Natural Velvet, and more. Mrs. Wiggins, Tim Conway is Mr. Tudball, a businessman who speaks in a mock Romanian accent, putting up with his empty-headed secretary, Mrs. Wiggins, played by Burnett. And the Queen, Burnett as a monarch patterned after Queen Elizabeth II, Harvey Corman as her consort, and Tim Conway as Private Arthur Newberry. So the Carol Burnett show over its 11 season run had many, 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 many guest stars. I mean, the list is just endlessly crazy. So a few in season one were Lucille Ball, our Carney, Imogene Coca, Tim Conway, Phyllis Diller, and Bobby Gentry. Into season two, you had Barbara Bain, George Goebel, Vicki Carr, Perry Como, Bob Hope and Marilyn Horn. Into season three, we had stars such as Pat Boone and George Carlin, Peggy Lee, Andy Griffith, Merv Griffin, Bing Crosby, Joan Rivers, and Edward Villela. In season four, Cass Elliott, Toady Fields, David Frost, Rita Hayworth, Jerry Lewis, Debbie Reynolds, and Paul Paulson. Season 5 included Kay Ballard, Karen Black, and The Carpenters, Ray Charles, Cass Elliott, Vincent Price, Tony Randall, and Burt Reynolds. Season 6, Ruth Buzzy, John Biner, Jack Cassidy, Petula Clark, Marty Feldman, Joel Gray, Valerie Harper, Paula Kelly, Helen Reddy, Carl Rayner, and Lily Tomlin. Season 7, Charo, Richard Crenna, The Jackson Five, Gloria Swanson, and Jack Weston. Season 8 included stars such as Alan Alda, Buddy Ebsen, Rock Hudson, Janet Jackson, Kenneth Mars, The Pointer Sisters, Wayne Rogers, Phil, Sivers, Ma- Phil Silvers, excuse me, Maggie Smith, Gene Stapleton, and Sally Struthers. Season 9, Sammy Davis Jr., Shirley MacLaine, Rita Moreno, Dick Van Dyke, Betty White, and Jessica Walter. Season 10, Glenn Campbell, Madeline Kahn, Hal Linden, Neil Sadaka, Dinah Shore, and Ben Vereen. And in Season 11 contained Captain and Tennille, Natalie Cole, Nancy DeSalt, Steve Martin, and James Stewart. And that is not the whole list, everybody. They're, they're so many notable famous guest stars. Considering her large body of work and doing great part to this TV show, Burnett received Kennedy Center honors in 2003 and was awarded the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in October 2013. In 2009, TV Guide ranked Went With The Wind number 53 on its list of the 100 Greatest Episodes. On September 13, 2016, Burnett released her memoir about the show titled In Such Good Company, 11 Years of Laughter, Mayhem, and Fun in the Sandbox. 
The book, full of anecdotes about the 1967-78 to 78 variety series, covers the history of how Burdett created the show, how she cast her co-stars, the co-stars she once fired and quickly rehired, and all of the show's memorable characters. The audio format of the book, which she narrated, won a Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Album. And from Mental Floss, I got a few fun facts about The Carol Burnett Show, written by Kara Kowalczyk. Carol Burnett's mother wanted her to be a writer. As Carol Burnett painfully recalled later in life, whenever she'd express an interest in a career in the theater as a teen, her mother would always dissuade her and recommend that she would have better luck studying to become a writer. You can always write, no matter what you look like, she would add. A total stranger helped to launch Burnett's career. As she was nearing graduation from UCLA, Burnett and several fellow drama students were invited to a departing professor's house to perform at his Bone Voyage party. She performed a scene from the musical Annie Get Your Gun, and later that evening, while she was standing in the buffet line, a man she'd never seen before approached her and complimented her performance. He then inquired what she planned to do with her life. She confessed that she dreamed of going to New York one day for a career on the stage, but seeing that she barely had enough gas money to drive back to Los Angeles that evening, it would be a very long time before she'd make it to Broadway. The man told her he'd be happy to lend her $1,000 to get her started with three conditions, that she repay him without interest in five years, that she was never to reveal his identity, and that once she was successful, she must pass a similar kindness along to another person in need. After pondering the offer over the weekend and consulting her mother and grandmother, who advised her to steer clear of the strange man who was probably involved in human trafficking or something worse, she took a chance and accepted his check. Vicki Lawrence caught Burnett's attention by writing her a fan letter. When Vicki Lawrence cut her hair in a short pixie cut as a high school senior, many of her classmates commented on her resemblance to Carol Burnett. Lawrence's somewhat overbearing stage mother encouraged her to write Burnett a letter, which she did, enclosing a photo in a newspaper article that mentioned her upcoming appearance in the Inglewood, California Miss Fireball contest. To her surprise, a seven-months pregnant Burnett showed up at the pageant to cheer her on. When Burnett had her baby, Lawrence took some flowers to the hospital, thinking she'd just dropped them off. But when the nurse on duty saw her, she immediately mistook her for Burnett's real-life half-sister half Chrissy and exclaimed, Wait until you see the baby, and usher her, ushered her into Carol's room. See, I told you they had a resemblance. The Q&A at the beginning of, uh, excuse me, okay, the Q&A at the beginning was Burnett's husband's idea. Joe Hamilton was not only Carol Burnett's husband, he was also the show's executive producer. It was traditional at the time, and still is in some cases, to have a stand-up comic step on stage before a show to tell some jokes and warm up the audience, kind of like in Seinfeld, if you guys noticed. Hamilton was wary of going that route, however. As Burnett later recalled, he worried, what if the guy is funnier than the rest of you? He thought it would be a good icebreaker if Burnett herself went out front before the proceedings to welcome the audience and answer a couple of questions. 
over the next 11 seasons, the question that she was asked the most was, can you do your Tarzan yell? Burnett once used her Tarzan yell as a form of identification. While shopping for nylon stockings in New York City's Berg Bergdorf Goodman one day, the saleswoman recognized Ber Burnett and asked for her autograph for her grandchildren. When it came time to check out, Burnett realized that she didn't have her credit card or driver's license in her wallet. She inquired if she could write a check. I'll have to see some ID, replied the woman who'd requested an autograph just moments before. The floor manager intervened and told Burnett that she'd accept her check if Burnett would do her Tarzan yell. Burnett complied, prompting a security guard to kick open a nearby door, burst in, and point his gun at her. Wow. Tim Conway rarely followed his script. Conway had been a frequent guest star on the show, and when Lyle Wagoner decided to leave the show in 1974, he felt that he was being underused. Conway was hired to replace him the following year. Conway was legendary for veering off script and ad-libbing for lengthy stretches to the amusement to some of his co-stars such as Corman and annoyance of others, Lawrence, who sometimes resented Conway's disruptions and spotlight hogging. Lawrence finally slipped her own ad-lib in one memorable occasion as Conway rambled on and on about an elephant during a family sketch. Her not-safe-for-work remark brought the rest of the cast to their knees and was said to be Dick Clark's favorite all-time outtake on his bloopers and practi practical jokes TV show. The show that became Mama's Family started out as a much darker one-off sketch. A sketch called The Reunion, which originally aired in March of 1974, featured the characters that eventually became known as The Family. In this initial installment, Roddy McDowell played Philip Harper, the successful younger brother of Eunice, returning home for a visit after winning a Pulitzer Prize. The family members were far crankier, more argumentative, and perhaps more representative of actual family life as they talked over one another and changed topics as soon as a thought occurred to them than the cartoonish characters they eventually came to be on the syndicated series Mama's Family. The piece proved to be so popular that 30 more family sketches appeared over the next four seasons, with such guest stars as Alan Alda and Betty White turning up as members of the extended Harper family. Dick Van Dyke was a regular for a short time. Harvey Corman left the Carol Burnett show at the end of season 10 to star in his own sitcom on ABC. The Harvey Corman show was canceled after five episodes. Dick Van Dyke was brought in as a replacement, but he was never a very good fit. As Burnett commented after the fact, when Harvey put on a wig and dress, he became a woman. When Dick Van Dyke did it, he was Dick Van Dyke in a wig and a dress. Van Dyke wasn't overjoyed with the job either. He lived in Arizona at the time, and the monthly 4,000-mile commute was exhausting. He was released from his contract in November 1977. Burnett's Went with the Wind curtain rod dress was Bob Mackey's brainstorm. 
Burnett's Gone with the Wind parody has made many funniest shows of all time lists over the years, and one of the defining moments of the sketch was when Carol, as Starlet O'Hara, descends the stairs at Tara, wearing the green velvet drapes with the curtain rods still in them, and admits, I saw it in a window and I couldn't resist. The original script called for Burnett to have the curtains tossed haphazardly over her shoulders, but Mackie decided that it would be funnier to create an actual dress and leave the hanger intact across her shoulders. He is slightly bitter all these years later that of all his magnificent creations, that joke dress has become his signature piece of all the memorable glamorous gowns he's created for celebrities over the decades. That curtain rod dress is the one that hangs in the Smithsonian. Conway's famous dentist skit was based on an actual incident. And if you guys have ever seen this skit, it is super hilarious. I personally have never seen the Went With The Wind or whatever, but this dentist one is one of the few I have seen from this show, and it is hilarious. And Tim Conway, he is, all, he is also very uh, com comedic. <coughs> okay, so when Conway was in the army having some work done on his teeth, the dentist accidentally injected his own thumb with Novocaine. Conway exaggerated the experience to hilarious effect in a classic skit that left Harvey Corman struggling to contain his laughter. During a 2013 interview, Conway told Conan O'Brien that Corman actually wet himself from laughing so hard. And there was only one celebrity guest that Burnett was never able to book. Over the 11 seasons the show ran, a veritable who's who of the entertainment industry did a guest turn from Steve Martin to Julie Andrews to then-Governor Ronald Reagan to Robin Williams to Ethel Merman, the only guest who Burnett dearly wanted to have but never did get was Betty Davis. Davis was willing to appear but demanded more money that the show had budgeted. Joe Hamilton advised his wife that if they gave in to Davis's demand, it would set an unpleasant precedent. So, you know, Carol Burnett, she, she's really funny. And on Netflix, maybe this was maybe three years ago, she had um, a little help with like Carol Burnett and friends or something like that. But it was a show that was focused on, like, it was kind of like, it reminded me of Kids Say the Darndest Things. She would kind of, like, interview children, um, and then she'd have, like, a celebrity guest star on the show. Um, and that's kind of what it, it gave me, like, Kids Say the Darndest Things vibes. Um, I only ever recall it having one season, but it was very, very cute. And, um... One thing I really was hoping to kind of find, um, if you notice in many of her shows, she would pull on her ear. And I always wondered what that meant. And I tried to look it up and Google it. And I, you know, um, from what I believe my, I remember my mom and my aunt talking some years ago about this. And I think it had something to do with like, the way she and her mother uh, would communicate is something to do with the ear tug. And that's like the signature, like, greeting 
of them. And that's, and she just kind of continued that throughout her career. Um, the signature ear tug at the end of her show. So yeah, um, I couldn't really find too much about it, but I do remember like some years ago, my, I believe it was my mom and my aunt or like somebody, I remember having a conversation about it and, um, that's what that was from. So it was like a greeting between her and her mom and she just kind of continued on that legacy. So going back now to the Donna Reed show, another one that goes back many, many years, even before Carol Burnett, 1958 to 1966. I've seen a few episodes of Donna Reed and I believe it's on Hulu, but I kind of was never so impressed, like just something about her attitude and her like the like her airiness, I guess you could say, was something that doesn't really attract me. Um, but to be honest, uh, you know, that's when I was younger, like it was, it was probably 10, 15 years ago and I haven't watched it since. So maybe I should give it another chance because it is a, it's a pretty family oriented show and I'm drawn to that. So, you know, maybe eventually again, I will. Um, so the series was created by William S. Roberts and developed by Reed and her then-husband producer, Tony Owen. Episodes revolved around typical family problems of the period, such as firing a clumsy housekeeper, throwing a retirement bash for a colleague, and finding quality time away from the children. Then daring themes such as women's rights and freedom of the press were occasionally explored. The show had an uncertain start in the ratings and was almost canceled, but fared better when it was moved from Wednesday to Thursday nights. In the show's middle seasons, Fabre sang what became a number one teen pop hit, Johnny Angel, and Peterson had above average success with the song My Dad, also introduced during the course of the series. I absolutely love that song, Johnny Angel, by the way. The Donna Reed Show was one of television's top 20 shows in 1963-64. to 64. Reed was repeatedly nominated for Emmy Awards between 1959 and 1962 and won a Golden Globe as Vest female TV star in 1963. She eventually grew tired of the workaday grind involved in the program and it was canceled in 1966 after 275 episodes. The series was sponsored by Campbell Soup Company, with Johnson & Johnson as the principal alternate sponsor, succeeded in the fall of 63 by the Singer Company. Following first run, the show entered daytime reruns on ABC and then syndication on Nick at Night and TV Land for several years. It is currently shown on Decades. The first five seasons have been released on DVD. This show was the first TV family sitcom to feature the mother as the center of the show. Reed's character, Donna Stone, is a loving mother and wife, but also a strong woman, an active participant in her community, a woman with feelings and a sense of humor. According to many of Reed's friends and family, Reed shared many similarities to the character that she portrayed on screen, implying that the fictional Donna Stone was a near-identical copy of Reed herself. 
In a 2008 interview, Paul Peterson, who played Jeff Stone, stated, The Donna Reed show depicts a better time and place. It has a sort of level of intelligence and professionalism that is sadly lacking in current entertainment products. The messages it sent out were positive and uplifting. The folks you saw were likable. The family was fun. The situations were familiar to people. It provided 22 and a half minutes of moral instructions and advice on how to deal with the little dilemmas of life. Jeff and Mary and their friends had all the same problems that real kids in high school did. Peterson continued, that's what the show was really about, the importance of family. That's where life's lessons are transmitted generation to generation. There's a certain way in which these are transmitted with love and affection. Episodes revolve around the lightweight and humorous sorts of situations and problems a middle-class family experienced in the late 50s and the early 60s, set in fictional Hilldale, state never mentioned. Donna, for example, would sometimes find herself swamped with the demands of community theatricals and charity drives. Mary had problems juggling boyfriends and finding dresses to wear to one party or another. And Jeff was often caught in situations appropriate to his age and gender, such as joining a secret boys club, avoiding love-spitten classmates, or bidding at auctions on an old football uniform. Alex was the family's rock of Gibraltar, but often found himself in situations that tested his patience. In one episode, Donna volunteered him as the judge of a baby contest, and in another episode, Mary insisted her gawky, geeky boyfriend was the spitting image of her father. Very occasionally, eccentric relatives would descend on the stones to complicate the household situation. The main cast and characters of the Donna Reed show include Donna Stone, played by Donna Reed, is the idolized middle-class housewife to Alex and the mother of Mary and Jeff. She grew up on a farm and became a nurse. She sometimes works as a nurse on the show. Donna was married to Alex when she was 18, and the couple live in fictional Hilldale. She participates in community activities such as charity campaigns and amateur theatricals. Like several television wives and mothers of the 50s, she inexplicably wears heels, pearls, and chic frocks to do the housework. Note, in one episode, it is revealed that Donna Stone's maiden name, like Donna Reed, is Donna Bell Mullinger, and she is also from Denison, Iowa. Alex Stone is played by Carl Betts, and he's a pediatrician. Like most television couples of the 50s, Alex and Donna sleep in twin beds. The two show a physical affection for each other slightly more intense than other television couples of the period. Mary Stone is played by Shelley Faberace. She's 14, almost 15, and a freshman in high school when the show opens. She has a few boyfriends during the course of the show, with Jimmy Hawkins as Scotty being a regular. Mary plays the piano like a professional and studies ballet. She leaves the show to attend college. 
Jeff Stone is played by Paul Peterson. He's almost 12 when the show opens. He is a typical American boy. He plays sports, likes to eat, and teases his older sister. Jeff is a complex character. He champions the underdog at school but cheats at board games. Atypical for the fictional children in 60s sitcoms, Jeff and Mary often get away with talking back to their parents. And Trisha is played by Patty Peterson, and she's a runaway orphan the age of eight, whom, she, whom the Stones adopt after Mary leaves for college. She remained for the duration of the program. Again, there were several memorable guest stars that appeared in the Donna Reed show. The list goes on, but so so many great ones, a few of them, and this is just few of a never-ending list. Don Drysdale, Willie Mays, Leslie Gore, Lassie, James Darren, Buster Keaton, Jay North, who played um, Dennis the Menace, um, Richard Deacon, Gail Gordon, Dick Wilson, um, Ch Cheryl Holdridge, I believe that's how you say that. Jack Albertson, Raymond Bailey, Bobby Buntrock, Bobby Burgess, Ellen Corby, Johnny Crawford, Stuart Irwin, Jamie Farr, George Hamilton, DeForest Kelly, Ted Knight, Marion Ross, Mary Treen, Jesse White, Estelle Winwood, and Will Wright. And from Decades TV, seven fun facts about Donna Reed. The Donna Reed show made Donna Reed herself an icon. Her recipes and advice appeared in women's magazines across the country. She even received the Mother's Committee Award. Donna, uh, okay, a photo inspired the Donna Reed show. Donna Reed was unsure what concept her own series would look like, but when a Screen Gem executive saw a joyful picture of Donna Reed and her real-life family, the idea began to take shape. The Donna Reed show wasn't one-dimensional. Donna's character showed a stay-at-home mother was as equally capable as her husband. She not only excelled in family life, but was extremely active in her community as well. Reed herself thought the show broke the rules for showing stories from a strong woman's perspective without soaking it in soap opera. The cast admired her. On-screen son Paul Peterson credits the loving care of Reed and Betts for helping him navigate the waters as a child star. On-screen daughter Shelley Fabares thought of her as a second mother and admired her integrity, strength, will, humor, and a capacity to be curious. Reed was a team player. Reed often encouraged writers to create stories in which other characters had the main focus. When Bob Crane left the series, she also made sure Anne McCrea, Crane's on-screen wife, stuck around until the end of the series. Campbell's Soup helped the show. The series' ratings were especially tame in the beginning, but its sponsor, Campbell Soup, liked the wholesome show and didn't bail on it. Eventually, as word of mouth spread, it took off. Campbell's Soup can also be seen in the background in many grocery store scenes. A reunion almost happened. 
1977, Father Knows Best had a highly rated reunion TV movie. Its success prompted the Donna Reed Show's cast to talk of a reunion, too. Unfortunately, Carl Betts passed in 1979, and the project never happened. And the series almost had a different name. Unlike other popular shows at the time, Donna's mother character was the series center, not the father figure. In fact, the show was almost called Mother Knows Best. So this next show is the last show we're going to do that's like taking us way back as a classic. And I, I adore this show. I adore Patty Duke. Um, she was in The Miracle Worker. She played Helen Keller, and she was just, I mean, absolutely phenomenal. And I think that's truly what made me fall in love with Patty Duke uh, growing up watching that movie and then being introduced to the Patty Duke show, um, which was on originally from 1963 to 1966. I mean, she's just... The Patty Duke show had its, it was a hit or miss. It had its moments, in my opinion. You know, she was just kind of like your typical back then prissy teenage girl, whatever. But her as Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker was just phenomenal. If you have not seen that movie, yes, it is older. It is in black and white, you know, I'm, you know, but incredible classic and of course the Helen Keller story is just it's a very moving and inspiring story and so I highly recommend The Miracle Worker with Patty Duke in it but anyways so Patty Lane Duke is a normal chatty rambunctious teenager living in the Brooklyn Heights section in New York City although the setting and characters resemble more simple and wholesome middle America her father, Martin Lane, played by William Shallert, is the managing editor of the New York Daily Chronicle. Patty affectionately addresses him as Popple. Her identical paternal cousin, Kathy Lane, also played by Duke, is sophisticated, brainy, and demure, and her father, Kenneth, also played by Shallert, Martin's identical twin brother, also works for the Chronicle as a foreign correspondent. Kathy moves to the United States from Scotland to live with Patty's family and attend Brooklyn Heights High School. While the girls are physically identical, their style, tastes, and attitudes are nearly opposite, which is responsible for some of the comedic situations on the show. Though the character of Kathy received first billing over the character of Patty in the show's opening credits, virtually all episodes centered around Patty's misadventures, with Kathy often only playing a minor supporting role. The remarkable, the remarkable physical resemblance that Patty and Kathy share is explained by the fact that their fathers are identical twins. While Patty speaks with a typical American accent, Kathy speaks with what is supposed to be a slight Scottish accent, though in fact it has little resemblance to one. Not surprisingly, however, both cousins are able to mimic each other's voice. Patty and Kathy also have an additional identical cousin, the Southern Belle Betsy, also played by Duke, featured in the season two episode, The Perfect Hostess. The main cast and characters of the Patty Duke show include, of course, Patty Duke as Patty Lane and Kathy Lane. Duke also guest starred as Betsy Lane in the episode, The Perfect Hostess in 1965. 
William Shallert as Martin Lane. Shallert also had a dual role as Kenneth Lane in three season one episodes, The House Guest, The Christmas Present, and Old Lang Syne, and as Uncle Jed in the season three episode, A Visit from Uncle Jed in 1966. Jean Byron is Natalie Lane, Patty's mother. Paul O'Keefe is Ross Lane, Patty's brother. Eddie Applegate is Richard Harrison, Patty's boyfriend. And Rita McLaughlin is uncredited, a double for Patty or Kathy. In the series' unaired pilot episode, Mark Miller played Martin Lane and Charles Herbert played Ross Lane. And again, there's of course a few notable guest stars in the Patty Duke show including Alan Mowbray, Joan Copeland, Frankie Avalon, Kay Ballard, James Brolin, Kim Carnes, Jeremy Clyde, Sammy Davis Jr., Jimmy Dean, Troy Donahue, George Gaines, Margaret Hamilton, George S. Irving, Peter Lawford, Paul Lindy, Estelle Parsons, Neva Patterson, Frank Sinatra Jr., Gene Stapleton, Chad Stewart, Daniel J. Trevanti, and Bobby Vinton. On April 27, 1999, the 33rd anniversary of the ABC cancellation of The Patty Duke Show, rival network CBS aired the TV movie The Patty Duke Show Still Rockin' in Brooklyn Heights, which reunited Duke, Shallert, Byron, and her final on-screen on-screen role as she died in February 2006 of complications following hip replacement surgery, O'Keefe and Applegate. In Still Rockin', Patty and Richard married after high school, had a son Michael, Elaine Gulim, who in turn married his wife Nancy, as mentioned, but is not seen, as she is out of town on business, and had a daughter, Molly, played by Jay McGregor. Patty and Richard were amicably divorced after 27 years of marriage, but towards the end of the movie, they reconcile. Kathy is a widow living in Scotland and has a teenage son, Liam McAllister, played by Kent Riley. Martin and Natalie moved to Florida after Martin retired from the New York Daily Chronicle. Most of the plot revolves around Patty's old rival, Sue Ellen Caldwell, portrayed by Cindy Williams as Kitty Sullivan, who played Sue Ellen Turner in 14 episodes over the first two seasons, was unavailable to reprise her role for the movie, yet Sullivan does appear as Sue Ellen in one of the segments from the TV series, who is planning on buying Brooklyn Heights High School, where Patty works as a drama teacher, raising it and replacing it with a mall, which is opposed by Patty, Kathy, and the rest of the Lane family. In 2009, Duke repri reprised her dual roles from the show in a public service announcement for the Social Security Administration in which Patty asked Kathy about where she got her info about how to get Social Security benefits and other questions such as how to apply online. The PSA was targeted toward baby boomers who were born or who grew up in the late 60s. In 2010, the main cast of the Patty Duke show, except Byron, who, as stated above, died in February 2006 from complications from hip replacement surgery, reprised their respective roles in a series of PSAs, again for the Social Security Administration. And from MeTV, 10 Fascinating Factoids About the Patty Duke Show. 
As Patty and Kathy Lane, Duke was double the teen idol. Learn how the Flintstones, Laverne and Shirley, and the Beastie Boys all link to the hit sitcom. To say that Patty Duke has led a full and fascinating life is an understatement. She was a game show winner all by the age of 18. She kickstarted her adult career with the Valley of the Dolls and continues to act on tele and continued to act on television up until the day of her death. She has seen her son, Sean Astin, act in blockbuster films. She was a pioneering spokesperson for bipolar disorder awareness, and she detailed her life openly in a memoir, Call Me Anna. In short, Patty Duke was awesome. The sitcom aired from 1963 to 1966 and perfectly captured the teenage experience of the era, both sides of it, as Duke portrayed identical cousins Patty and Kathy Lane, well, and one other character, but we'll get to that. The series bubbled over with rock and roll energy thanks to the American Patty Lane and sensible values thanks to Scottish Kathy. So let's grab a hot dog and lose control because here's some things you might not know about the Patty Duke show. The sitcom was shot in New York City. Like Naked City and Car 54, Where Are You?, the Patty Duke show bucked the trend of producing television in Los Angeles and shot on location in New York City. The production set up in Chelsea Studios, former home of the Phil Silver Show and current home to Wendy Williams. Yet the decision was made for somewhat odious reasons. The more lenient New York State child labor laws allowed the producers to work Duke longer hours. The crew also shot around her fictional stomping grounds in Brooklyn, as you can see in the stills. Unlike the Ricardo's apartment, the Lane family home was a real New York City address, 9 Remsen Street, on a waterfront cul-de-sac in Brooklyn Heights. It's been placed in the, on the map of New York City's sitcom homes. Hopefully, they held on to the place. The houses at the end of Remsen are now estimated to be worth around 3 to $5 million, according to Zillow. I could only imagine the money that would rake in just because of that. The theme song is sung by the same vocal group behind the Flintstones theme. The Skip Jacks may not be a household name. The co-ed vocal group only cut two albums of lounge music for RCA in 59 and 60, Let's Get Away From It All in Sweet, Hot, and Blue. Yet the harmonic act is responsible for a song most anyone can sing, Meet the Flintstones. Their theme song from Patty Duke even begins, Meet Kathy. Of course, who could forget the most famous line regarding Patty Lane? A hot dog makes her lose control. We suspect a hot dog would have made Fred Flintstone lose control as well. Patty Duke had a top 10 pop single. Oddly, the show did not utilize its own multimedia star for the theme song. In 1965, Duke reached number 8 on the charts with Don't Just Stand There, a dessert of dramatic teen pop. Duke also performed twice on Shindig, and uh, if you want to look it up on YouTube, there's a video of her singing it. I have never heard of Shindig. Both Patty Duke and William Shallard actually play three roles. While the show centered around identical cousins, Patty and Kathy, a third cousin, B Betsy, pops in from Tennessee in The Perfect Hostess. In that episode, Duke is therefore also jokingly credited as a special guest. 
what made these cousins look alike? Well, they were the children of identicals Martin, Kenneth, and Jed Lane, all played by William Shallert. Patty's body double went on to be a soap star. To pull off scenes with Kathy and Patty, the show utilized camera tricks and body doubles. When you see the back of one cousin's head in a conversation, it is likely Rita Walker, named McLaughlin. From 1970 to 1981, the actress would get to show her face and skills as Carol Deming on As the World Turns. Cindy Williams portrayed Sue Ellen Turner in the 1999 reunion movie. When the cast reunited in 99 for the TV movie, The Patty Duke Show Still Rockin' in Brooklyn Heights, most of the actors reprised their original roles. One actor to not return was Kitty Sullivan, who played school rival Sue Ellen. In the modern update, Cindy Williams of Laverne and Shirley fame stepped into the role of the arch-nemesis who is seeking to tear down the old school. And Patty won $32,000 on the $64,000 challenge and had to testify to the U.S. Senate about it. The infamous quiz show scandals of the 1950s shook the entertainment industry and the audience's faith in television. Duke was in the middle of the mess as she won 32 grand at the age of 12 on the $64,000 challenge, a spinoff of the $64,000 question. As host Sonny Fox later told PBS in a documentary about the scandal, they coached her. That's when she was about 12. Three years later, she's about 15. She was summoned down to the Senate to testify in their investigation, and she was coached again in how to lie to the U.S. Senate. When pressed, Duke broke down and finally spilled the beans. Helen Hunt and Anthony Edwards played Duke's kids in It Takes Two. In 1982, the creator of Soap and Benson launched the Patty Duke vehicle It Takes Two. The sitcom only lasted a season, but the failure was hardly the fault of casting. A young Helen Hunt and Anthony Edwards, eventual television stars themselves, played the teen children. Fun fact, the kitchen set was recycled for use and hardly changed as the kitchen in The Golden Girls. Comedian and podcaster Mark Marin was falsely credited as being on the show. Comedian Mark Heron hosts the Top 20 podcast WTF. In one episode, Marin explained that he had erroneously been credited by the Internet Movie Database as having appeared on the Patty Duke show, which would have been impressive given he was born the year the show debuted. The confusion came from a teenager named Mark Marin appearing as Walter in Patty Pitt's Wits Two Brits Hits, which also guest starred the pop duo Chad and Jeremy. The show is mentioned in two Beastie Boys songs. Bo Beastie Boys lyrics are riddled with television to references from Columbo to Three's Company. In the 1989 single Shake Your Rump, Mike D boasts about his many dance moves, the Patty Duke, the Wrench, and Then I Bust the Tango. He is referring to the manic move shown by Patty in the opening credits. As a reminder, five years later on Get It Together, the rapper reiterated, I do the Patty Duke in case you don't remember. I'd have to re-listen to those songs to remember, uh, not going to lie. But yes, um, in all honesty, Patty Duke, like she is, she was, excuse me, she was 
Um, and she was incredible. She was a wonderful and brilliant actress. Okay, so we're going to move on now to Cougar Town, which starred Courtney Cox. Of course, we know her best as Monica Geller on Friends. And this was a very different role from Monica Geller. Cougar Town was on from 2009 to 2015. And no, I have never seen this show. The show was created by Bill Lawrence and Kevin Beagle and was produced by Doozer and Coquette Productions in association with ABC Studios. Filming took place at Culver Studios in Culver City, California. The pilot episode achieved over 11 million viewers. Season 2 premiered in September 2010 with nearly 8.25 million viewers. Season 3, consisting of 15 episodes, was originally slated to premiere November 2011, but because of ABC's promotion of the ill-fated Man Up, it premiered in February 2012. Following the Season 3 finale, it was announced that TBS had purchased the rights to the series for an additional 15-episode season to air in 2013 with options for additional seasons. In March 2013, TBS renewed the series for a fifth season of 13 episodes, which premiered in January 2014. In May 2014, TBS renewed Cougar Town for a sixth and final season. Season 6 premiered in January 2015, and the series concluded on March 31, 2015. Set in the fictional town of Gulf Haven, Florida, which is nicknamed Cougar Town because its high school team mascot is a cougar, the series focuses on Jules Cobb, a recently divorced woman in her 40s, facing the often humorous challenges, pitfalls, and rewards of life's next chapter, along with her teenage son, her ex-husband, and her wine-loving friends who together make up her dysfunctional but supportive and caring extended family. Most scenes in the series take place in Jules' home, Gray's pub, or around her ex-husband's boat. The main cast and characters of Cougar Town include Courtney Cox as Jules Cobb, a recently divorced single mother exploring the truths about dating and aging. Jules spent most of her 20s and 30s married to Bobby and raising a son, Travis. Because she has been out of the dating world for a while, Jules discovers it is difficult to find a love again. At first, she tried to make up for lost time by dating younger men, thus becoming a cougar, but the show quickly took a different turn as the character began to pursue men her own age. From the end of season one, she began dating her divorced neighbor, Grayson, whom she married in season three. She resides in Gulf Haven, Florida, and is a successful real estate agent. Um, Krista Miller as Ellie Torres, Jules's feisty next-door neighbor and best friend. A former corporate attorney turned stay-at-home mother, Ellie is easily the most intellectual among the group. She's married to Andy Torres and the two have a son named Stan. She is Jules's sarcastic, unapologetic confidant who takes pleasure in teasing Lori and to a lesser extent Bobby, Grayson, and Travis. Busy Phillips is Lori Keller, Jules's young, attractive employee who is known for her fun-loving personality. Lori works with Jules in the same real estate office as her assistant. Prior to Jules's relationship with Grayson, Lori encouraged Jules to get out and have some fun and tried to reacquaint her to the world of dating. 
Lori has survived a rough childhood in foster care and is initially a trashy party animal, but matures throughout the show as she learns how to become a functional grown-up. Ellie, who refers to her as Jelly Bean, is initially open, openly hostile towards Lori, but their relationship develops into a grudging respect and eventually a close, open friendship. Dan Bird as Travis Cobb, Jules's and Bobby's son, who is a senior in high school at the start of the series, then later attends a local college. He loves both of his parents, although he is frequently embarrassed by both of them. In high school, he dealt with humiliation from his friends and classmates, but has made friends at college. He is generally supportive of his mother, but finds her parenting style a bit too smothering. After dealing with his mom's real estate ads around town and his dad's new job as a former high school's grass cutter, his father helps him realize not to worry about what other people think. Spending a lot of time with his parents and their friends, he often flirts with Lori and is shown to have a crush on her. Josh Hopkins, as Grayson Ellis, is the owner of Gray's Pub. He lives across the street from Jules. Like Jules, he is newly divorced at the start of the series, but unlike Jules, he embraced his newly single lifestyle. Early on, Grayson enjoyed dating younger women and rubbing it in Jules's face. Eventually, he revealed that he wanted to have kids, but his ex-wife didn't, a fact that becomes more painful when he learns that she and the man she left Grayson for are now expecting a child. Ian Gomez as Andy Torres is Ellie's husband, who is also Jules's next-door neighbor. Andy, an investment advisor, is a devoted husband to Ellie and also a loving father to their son, Stan. He and Jules's ex-husband, Bobby, are best friends, and Andy is shown to have a hero worship for Bobby. Brian Van Holt is Bobby Cobb, Jules's ex-husband, who lives on his boat in a parking lot, which makes him legally homeless. Bobby married Jules after she became pregnant with their son, Travis. He was a professional golfer and had numerous extramarital affairs during his career, which led to Jules divorcing him prior to the events of the pilot episode, although they still share a close friendship and even hooked up once. Bobby gives golf lessons and mows the lawn at Travis's former high school and drives a well-worn golf cart. He frequently refers to Jules as Jaybird. He also has invented a game, Penny Can, which is featured in several episodes. And Bob Clendenin as Tom Gazelian, Jules's widowed neighbor who expresses his attraction for her in weird ways. He makes wine in his garage and is always doing things for Jules and the gang without getting anything back in an attempt to become part of their group. He's frequently found to be peering into Jules's kitchen window, unnoticed by Jules and or the gang, until he says something. The gang's love of red wine, particularly by Jules, is a leading theme of the show. Each season, Jules has had, in succession, a series of increasingly larger drinking vessels. Firstly, she used the oversized glass Big Joe, followed by the 44-ounce Big Carl, actually part of a lamp, Big Lou, actually a vase, Big Tippy, a stolen vase from the cruise Hollywood trip in season four, and Big Chuck, introduced in season five. During their Hawaiian holiday, she drank from Big Kimo, actually a candle holder from the hotel room. At one point, the group forces Lori to drink from a miniature glass called Little Richard as punishment. 
Another running gag is the group's love of making up social rules for each other, such as having a council that creates unusual punishments for the members who commit a social infraction. The gang often plays Penny Can, a simple yet popular game made up by Bobby that involves throwing pennies into an empty paint can. The gang also frequently changes the meaning of words, such as cakewalk, to mean something different, as it is difficult to walk while carrying a cake. These changes to linguistic rules are, pre are predicated upon Ellie shouting, Change approved! Since the second season, every episode had a running gag in the episode credit sequence, often making fun of the show's name because it was no longer about man-hungry cougars. You know, this doesn't sound like, Cougar Town doesn't sound like it'd be my type of show per se, but, you know, just because of Courtney Cox, I wouldn't mind giving it a shot. Okay, we're going to move on now to our final three shows of sitcoms, sitcoms, and more sitcoms. And then we are finally going to get some episodes on teen dramas that you guys voted on. So into our final three shows now to start off. One show that I really love, I would consider it like the Black SNL. Um, In Living Color was on from 1990 to 1994. In Living Color is an American sketch comedy television series that originally ran on Fox from April 1990 to May 1994. Keenan Ivory Wyans created, wrote, and starred in the program. The show is produced by Ivory Way Productions in association with 20th Television and was taped at Stage 7 at the Fox Television Center on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California. The title of the series was inspired by the NBC announcement of broadcast being presented in living color during the 60s prior to mainstream color television. It also refers to the fact that most of the show's cast was black, unlike other sketch comedy shows such as Saturday Night Live, whose casts were mostly white at the time. It was controversial due to the Wines' decision to portray black humor from a raw and uncut perspective in a time when mainstream American tastes regarding black comedy had been set by shows such as The Cosby Show, causing an eventual feud for control between Fox executives and the Wines. Other members of the Wines family, Damon, Kim, Sean, and Marlon, had regular roles while brother Dwayne frequently appeared as an extra. The show also starred several previously unknown comedians and actors including Jamie Foxx, Jim Carrey, Tommy Davidson, David Allen Greer, and Takia Crystal Kima. The show introduced Jennifer Lopez and Carrie Ann and Abba as members of In Living Colors dance troupe The Fly Girls with actress Rosie Perez serving as choreographer. The show was immensely popular in its first two seasons, capturing more than a 10-point Nielsen rating in the third and fourth seasons. Ratings faltered as the Wyans brothers fell out with the Fox Network's leadership over creative control and rights. The series won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Variety Music or Comedy Series in 1990. The series gained international prominence for its bold move and its all-time high ratings gained by airing a live special episode as a counter-program for the halftime show of U.S. leader CBS's live telecast of, Super Bowl, of the Super Bowl, prompting the National Football League to book a list acts for future game entertainment, starting with Michael Jackson the following year. 
In 2018, a history of the show Homie Don't Play That by David Peisner was released by 37 Inc., an imprint of Simon & Schuster. The main cast of In Living Color includes Jim Carrey, Kelly Caulfield, Kim Coles, Tommy Davidson, David Allen Greer, Takia Crystal Kima, Damon Wyans, Keenan Ivory Wyans, Kim Wyans, Sean Wyans, Jamie Foxx, Steve Park, DJ Twist, Marlon Wyans, Alexandra Wentworth, Anne-Marie Johnson, Jay Leggett, Reggie McFadden, Carol Rosenthal, and Mark Wilmore. And the Fly Girls included Carrie French, Carrie Ann and Abra, and, and Abba, Deidre Lang, Rosie Perez as the choreographer, Lisa Marie Todd, Michelle Whitney Morrison, Carla Garrido, Jennifer Lopez, Josie Harris, Lisa Joanne Thompson, Lorianne Gibson, and Masako Willis. The sketch comedy show helped launch the careers of comedians and actors Jim Carrey, then credited as James Carrey, one of only two white members of the original cast, Jamie Foxx, who joined the cast in the third season, and David Allen Greer, an established theater actor who had worked in Keenan Ivory Wines' 88 motion picture, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka. The series strove to produce comedy with a strong emphasis on modern black subject matter. It became renowned for parody, especially of race relations in the United States. For instance, Carrie was frequently used to ridicule white musicians such as Snow and Vanilla Ice, who performed in genres more commonly associated with black people. The Wyans themselves often played exaggerated black ghetto stereotypes for humor and effect. A sketch parroting Soul Train mocked the show as Old Train, suggesting the show, along with its host, Don Cornelius, was out of touch and only appealed to to the elderly and the dead. When asked about the show's use of stereotypes of black culture for comedy, Wyan said, Half of comedy is making fun of stereotypes. They only get critical when I do it. Woody Allen has been having fun with his culture for years, and no one says anything about it. Martin Scorsese, his films basically deal with the Italian community and no one ever says anything to him. John Hughes, all of his films parody upscale white suburban life. Nobody ever says anything to him. When I do it, then all of a sudden it becomes a racial issue. You know what I mean? It's my culture and I'm entitled to poke fun at the stereotypes that I didn't create in the first place. I don't even concern myself with that type of criticism because it's racist in itself. And all I can say to that is amen. It's the truth. Some prominent skits on In Living Color include the Homeboy Shopping Network featuring Damon and Keenan as streetwise criminals operating an unlicensed home shopping network style shopping network out of the back of their van to sell stolen goods. Fire Marshal Bill featuring Carrie as an unhinged, dangerously incompetent fire marshal. Men on Film featuring Damon and Greer as effeminate black film critics with exaggerated physical motions such as Two Snaps Up. Homie D. Clown featuring Damon as a misanthropic, verbally abusive clown doing demeaning entertainment gigs for low pay as part of his prison release program. East Hollywood Squares featuring many of the cast in a ghetto parody of the game show Hollywood Squares. 
Benita Butrell featuring Kim Wyans is an untrustworthy neighborhood gossip. Parodies of Arsenio Hall, who was popular on his own show at the time by Keenan Wyans, and Calhoun Tubbs, a blues singer played by Greer, who sang extremely short songs about 10 seconds each at the slightest provocation. And from Mental Floss, a few things you might not know about In Living Color. Six Wyans family members appeared on the show. Keenan hired Damon, Kim, Sean, and Marlon Wyans as cast members throughout the run of the series, while Dwayne Wyans was a production assistant and often appeared as an extra. Their other four siblings, Nadia, Elvira, Deirdre, and Craig Wyans, did not participate. Network executives wanted to delay any potential outrage. Despite initial assurances that they wanted to push the edge, Fox executive Peter Chernin told Bynes that the network wanted to take the Men on Film, The Wrath of Farrakhan, and Homeboy Shopping Network sketches out of the first episode, but assured him that they could, would run them later once In Living Color had built up an audience. Wyans refused and ultimately got his way. Fox waited one year before airing the pilot. Barry Diller was terrified of the show, producer Tamara Warrit told details. He showed it to the NAACP. The NAACP was comprised of older members of the black community, and this was a hip, sassy, tongue-in-cheek show, so I don't think they got a lot of the humor. Before airing it, the network wanted to bring in members of organizations like the Urban League as consultants, but Keenan again refused. Jennifer Lopez wasn't a fly girl until the third season. Where is Dancing with the Stars judge and choreographer Carrie Ann Anaba was a fly girl from the beginning and left at the end of season three, Lopez didn't make her in Living Color dancing debut until September 1991 during the third season premiere. That same night, Jamie Foxx was introduced as a new cast member. Homie D. Clown was based on Paul Mooney. You may know the longtime comedy writer who, who wrote For in Living Color as the star of the Chappelle Show sketches Ask a Black Dude and Negro Damas. After the writers followed Keenan's orders to mess with him, Mooney said, Oh, homie, don't play that. Damon Wyans and the writers worked from there. There were plenty of former and future SNL stars. Damon Wyans was an SNL cast member during the show's 1985-86 to 86 season, but was fired for ad-libbing during a live sketch. After Chris Rock left SNL, he appeared in six episodes of In Living Color, mostly as his character Cheap Pete from I'm Gonna Get You Sucka. Regular In Living Color director Paul Miller originally directed SNL for three years. As far as other SNL connections, Colin Quinn was a fifth season writer and Molly Shannon played an office trainee in a sketch two years before joining the NBC series, while Jim Carrey unsuccessfully auditioned for SNL three times before landing on In Living Color. Damon Wines was responsible for getting Jim Carrey. 
Knowing Carrie from the comedy store and from working together on the movie Earth Girls Are Easy, Damon was Zebo, Carrie was Whiplock, Damon strongly urged Keenan to hire him. It took a while to match Carrie's financial demands, and Thomas Hayden Church was almost cast instead before a deal was made. Thomas Hayden Church was in Wings, um, in case anybody recognizes the name, that's where he is from. Carrie's infamous ass-talking scene from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, came from an incident in the writer's room. Frustrated one day with Keenan's constant rejections of pitched sketches, Carrie stood up and read a sketch of his from his butt in Keenan's direction. The two almost fought before Keenan walked out of the room. Martin Lawrence didn't pass the In Living Color auditions. In addition to Lawrence, Margaret Cho and Susie Essman also auditioned, but never made it on the show. The Frenchie character originated from a night out with Eddie Murphy and Rick James. Visiting his friend Murphy, Keenan discovered a closet full of cheap versions of Eddie's red leather outfit from a stand-up special, Delirious, sent from fans. Wyans thought it would be funny to put one on, as well as a Rick James wig, a gold chain with an F on it, and a gazelle glasses and go out clubbing. The night ended with Rick James inviting him to join him in his limo, where Keenan pretended to be Murphy's cousin from Augusta, Georgia, for the rest of the night. It's credited with making the Super Bowl halftime shows entertaining. Entertaining, excuse me. Fox aired a Dorito-sponsored live episode of In Living Color during halftime of Super Bowl of the Super Bowl, causing some 20 to 25 million viewers to switch to Fox from CBS's presentation of the game. The official NFL halftime show was called Winter Magic, which consisted of a skating performance from Brian. Boitano and Dorothy Hamill, and a song by Gloria Stefan, all with the winter season and Winter Olympics theme. Michael Jackson performed during intermission of the next year's Super Bowl, and high-profile musical acts have headlined halftime shows of the big game ever since. The live Men on Football Super Bowl halftime sketch caused some trouble. After Wyans and Greer implied that Richard Gere and Carl Lewis were gay, both men got upset. Gears' agent threatened a lawsuit, but nothing came of it. Lewis's situation was resolved following an apology letter. The live show is on a five-second delay. Keenan has said it was 30 seconds, but the censor that night did not edit out the jokes because Lewis's sexuality was openly discussed in Hollywood at the time. And the Wyans family made an on-air protest. Damon and Marla, Marlon Wyans were free to leave with their brother, but Sean and Kim stayed because they were made under contract. So they and the other cast members expressed their displeasure with the situation by wearing black shades and not participating in Jamie Foxx's Christmas number at the end of the first episode following Kanan's departure. You know, I love In Living Color. I thought it was, at first I thought it was kind of stupid. And, you know, I never really got into Saturday Night Live episodes either. Um, but I absolutely, I, I find the Wyans brothers, you know, hilarious. And I love Damon Wyans and my wife and kids. So, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely, it's just so funny. And, you know, you don't, you couldn't have TV like that anymore. Let's just say I'm surprised that Saturday Night Live still gets away with a lot of the shit that they have, to be honest. 
So on to the next show, a show that I do not particularly care for, but I included as a part of this anyways, because just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not loved by others. Everybody Hates Chris was on from 2005 to 2009. Everybody Hates Chris is an American period sitcom television series that is based around the troubled experiences of comedian Chris Rock as a teenager. The show's title parodies the popular CBS sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond and is set from 1982 to 1987. However, Rock himself was actually a teenager from 1978 to 1984, having been born in 1965. The main cast and characters of the show include Tyler James Williams as Chris, Terry Crews as Julius, Tashina Arnold as Rochelle, Taquan Richmond as Drew, Imani Hakim as Tanya, and Vincent Martella as Greg Wooliger. Everybody Hates Chris received critical acclaim. The American Film Institute selected Everybody Hates Chris as one of the best 10 television series of 2007, stating that the show provides a very real look at growing up in America, a challenge that demands a discussion of race and class often absent from television today. Everybody Hates Chris was named one of the best school shows of all time by AOL TV. Common Sense Media's Marjorie Case and Chanel Walker and Emily Kofid gave the show four stars and said it was a prime example of how to take serious issues and approach them in a humorous yet thought-provoking way. The series is innovative, funny, and stereotype-defying, enjoyable for teens and their parents. In March 2021, it was announced an animated reboot of the series was in development with Chris Rock returning as narrator. It was announced in July that Sanjay Shah, previous executive producer and co-showrunner of Central Park, was tapped to write and executive produce the series. So, fans of Everybody Hates Chris, you will have that to look forward to coming up soon. And last year was the show's 15th anniversary, and so Shadow and Act uh, released an interview with Tyler James Williams, releasing nine little-known facts for the show's 15th anniversary, written by Monique Jones. Everybody Hates Chris premiered 15 years ago, and Tyler James Williams, who played a young Chris Rock in the series, tweeted to fans nine little-known facts about the iconic series. The child actors dealt with a limited schedule. Williams wrote that he and the other child actors of the show were around 12 to 13 years old, which meant they could only film for short amounts of time. Because of child labor laws, we could only work nine and a half hours versus the usual show average of 12 hours a day. This group had to be more efficient than usual, he wrote. Everyone rose to the occasion. Everybody Hates Chris jump-started the CW. The show was part of the first group of the shows that gave the CW a network created as a result of the merger between the WB and UPN its start. We were a big part of a small collective of shows that helped launch the CW to what it is today, wrote Williams. 
We premiered on UPN and got the network their first and only Golden Globe nomination in our first season before UPN merged with the WB to create what is now the CW. We were a big part of a small collective of shows that helped launch the CW to what it is today. Imani Hakim's impressive casting who played Williams's on-screen sister Tanya, landed her role after the first audition. Verily rarely does this happen first time out the gate, wrote Williams. It speaks to how great naturally built for this she is. Hakeem is currently starring on Apple TV Plus's Mythic Quest. Everybody Hates Chris was high school. Williams wrote that he can't remember any specific episode because, to him, filming the show was high school for us, so it's the equivalent of asking you if you remember one of the less eventual days from your high school life. And so, do you remember the episode when? No, I don't. In my memory bank, it's all one big episode. This was high school for us, so it's like the equivalent of asking me that. I can recall pieces, but not specifics. The show is still in syndication. Williams confirmed that only four seasons were shot in four years, 88 episodes in total. We were done by 2009, he wrote. It seems like we filmed for longer than we did because we blew up in syndication once we finished around 2009, and that's when many fans found the show. So is the show still filming? No, we only shot four seasons in four short years. We were done by 2009, but it just seems like we filmed longer than we did because that's when fans found the show. Allie Leroy deserves his flowers. Williams wrote that Everybody Hates Chris's co-creator, Ali Leroy, is the true backbone of the show. Chris Rock receives a lot of credit for the show, as he should, but the man on the ground every day running this how and making it the legendary show that it was, was Mr. Ali Leroy, he wrote. He is the answer to why this show worked. He's a legend who deserves all of his flowers. A reboot has been brought up. Williams revealed that there has been a convo about a reboot, but the interesting hiccup and blessing is that everyone in this, in the photo is very busy. With everyone working, Williams wrote, we'll keep trying, but I'm proud of our scheduling issues. Williams gives answers about the series finale. He wrote that the series finale was shot for a parody of The Sopranos, one of the popular shows of 2009, the same year Everybody Hates Chris ended. The series ended with Chris trying to earn his GED. Williams confirmed that Chris does get his GED and drops out, which starts his journey to comedy. And the series wasn't filmed in New York. Even though Everybody Hates Chris was set in New York, the series was filmed in Los Angeles. Although they cast a kid from New York who was still living there at the time, for the lead it was all shot at Paramount Studios in L.A., Williams wrote. That's why you see the outside of the family house and so many other shows and music videos. And now, moving in to our final show, 
This show will be ending soon this year. It's in its last season, and it is on TV Land, starring Hilary Duff, Younger. It started in 2015 and will end this year in 2021. It's an American comedy drama television series created and produced by Darren Starr. It is based on the 2005 novel of the same title by Pamela Redmond Citron. The single camera series premiered on TV Land in March 2015 and has since received generally positive reviews from critics. Ahead of the fifth season's premiere, it was renewed for a sixth season, which premiered in June 2019. In July 2019, TV Land renewed the series for a seventh and final season, making it the longest-running original series in the network's history. Sutton Foster stars as Liza Miller, a 40-year-old divorcee who has to manage her career in a publishing company, having faked her identity as a younger woman to get her job while her romantic and professional lives are measured against up-and-comings. Hilary Duff, Debbie Mazur, Miriam Shore, and Nico Tortorella co-star in major supporting roles in the first season, with Molly Bernard and Peter Herman in recurring roles. For the second season, Bernard and Herman were promoted to series regulars. Charles Michael Davis had a recurring role in the fourth season and was promoted to the main cast for the fifth season. However, for the seventh and final season, Shore and Davis were downgraded to recurring guest stars as they each appeared in only one episode of the season, respectively. Younger is mainly set in New York City and chronicles the personal and professional life of Liza Miller, a divorced 40-year-old woman with a teenage daughter and a failed marriage that collapsed due to her former husband's gambling addiction. After 26-year-old tattoo artist Josh mistakenly thinks that he and Liza are about the same age, she concocts a plan to pass herself off as a 20-something to re-enter the ageist industry of publishing, later becoming the assistant of empirical press marketing head Diana Trout and befriending Kelsey Peters, a co-worker. The main cast and characters of Younger include Sutton Foster's Liza Miller, a 40-year-old divorced mother in the show's protagonist, Debbie Mazur as Maggie Amato, Liza's lesbian artist best friend and roommate, Miriam Shore as Diana Trout, Liza's temperamental boss who works as head of marketing at Empirical Press, Nico Tortorella as Josh, a 26-year-old tattoo artist who owns his studio, Hilary Duff is Kelsey Peters, a 26-year-old book editor at Empirical Press who befriends Liza after they start working together. Molly Bernard is Lauren Heller, Kelsey's 20-something friend. Peter Herman is Charles Brooks, head, head and heir of Empirical Press. And Charles Michael Davis is Zane Anders, an editor at Rivington who competes with Kelsey to discover who's best. Some special guest stars include Martha Plimpton as Cheryl Sussman, who plays a rival publisher who knew Liza early in her career, and she threatens to expose her. Richard Mazur as Edward L. L. Moore, the writer of Crown of Kings, one of Empirical Press's biggest-selling novel series, which is a homage to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire from the Game of Thrones series. The character himself is a homage to Martin, having similarity to Martin's physical traits. 
Cameron Mannheim as Dr. Jane Ray, a famous therapist who records a podcast which inspires a book called The Deciding Decade. Lois Smith as Belinda LaCroix, a romance novelist, one of Empirical Press's oldest members. After decades of successful work, she dies during a lunch with Liza, Charles, and Diana. And Jesse James Keetle as Tam, Lauren's personal assistant. It was reported in May 2020 that Viacom, CBS, and Darren Starr had partnered to develop a spin-off series which would revolve around Kelsey Peters with Hilary Duff starring. However, in June of 2021, following the series' conclusion, it has been revealed that the spin-off is no longer in the works due to Duff being cast on the How I Met Your Mother spin-off, How I Met Your Father. According to creator Darren Starr, he stated that the Kelsey spinoff has been resolved after the series finale, regardless of any notion of a spinoff. Starr stated that it was always going to end with Kelsey doing her own thing alone, heading to Los Angeles. And from thethings.com, 15 sweet facts we didn't know about Hilary Duff's show Younger, written by Aya Sincera. Younger is the perfect series for anyone who's been missing Hilary Duff since Lizzie McGuire. Back in the day, many of us were fans of Lizzie McGuire, and if we've been following along with Hilary Duff's career since then, we know that she's been starring on the fabulous series called Younger for the past few years. With the new season coming, so- coming soon, which is out now, now is the perfect time to catch up if we haven't seen every episode yet. Younger features Sutton Foster as Liza Miller, a 40-year-old something who can't find a job in her chosen industry, publishing. She makes the decision to say that she's 26, and when she is hired as an assistant at a publishing company, she realizes that she'll have to keep the millennial lifestyle going. Younger is based on a novel, and the page-to-screen journey took an entire decade. According to Glamour.com, Younger is based on a novel by Pamela Redmond Citran. It was published back in 2005. The page-to-screen journey took an entire decade. We're so glad that it worked out because we love watching the show so much. We often hear about movies being delayed or taking a long time to make a deal, so this makes sense. Hilary Duff says the actors know nothing about each season before filming. If it's tough for fans to wait for new episodes of Younger to see where all the characters have ended up, what's it like for the stars? According to Oprah Magazine, Hilary Duff said that the actors know nothing about each season before filming. She said they never tell us anything, and I always feel like it's a letdown, but I have no information, really. The female-only club on the show is based on a real place called The Wing. Insider.com says that when the characters on the show go to a female club called The Nest, it's inspired by a real place that is called The Wing. This was a really cool storyline as the characters soon realize that this kind of exclusive club might not be all that it's cracked up to be. With the seventh season, Younger is TV Land's longest-running series. Oprah Magazine says that since the seventh season of Younger is coming, it's the show on its network, TV Land, that has aired the longest. We'd love to see seven more seasons of the series since it's such a comforting, feel-good kind of show. But we'll settle for just the last season. 
Sutton Foster used to be married to Christian Borrell, who played a writer that Liza was interested in. When Liza becomes interested in a writer named Don, it's a juicy storyline that makes her realize that not everyone can be trusted and that not everyone is a nice person. Insider.com says that these two actors used to be married. Yup, Sutton Foster and Christian Borrell were once husband and wife. Darren Starr says the theme is about society being geared toward young people, not necessarily Liza's big secret. People think that the theme of the show is about Liza's big secret, but Darren Starr says it's about society being geared toward younger people. According to Fame 10, Darren Starr said the secret is the premise of the show, but the theme of the show is ultimately about a woman living in a younger world. At a certain point, maybe that's what it will become. Nico Tortella, who plays Josh, says he and Sutton Foster have great chemistry and work well together. We love watching Liza and Josh, who is played by Nico. Whether we ship those two or we want her to be with Charles, we can't really deny how adorable they are. According to Fame 10, Nico Tortorella says that he and Sutton Foster have great chemistry and work so well together, which we love hearing. Darren Starr wanted to use Sutton Foster's musical theater background on the show. Sutton Foster has a background in musical theater, and according to The Hollywood Reporter, Darren Starr wanted her to dance on the show. She does an amazing job, so this was a great decision. Starr said, I'm so happy that I got her to not only sing, but also to dance in the series. The showrunners pushed to ensure the series didn't end with the season 6 finale. According to Oprah Magazine, the showrunner pushed to make sure that the show didn't end with the last episode of season 6. We're excited to hear that because if we didn't have at least one more season to watch, we'd be totally bummed out. There's nothing worse than a show being cancelled or ending randomly on a cliffhanger. Marriage Vacation has been published in real life. CSNBC says that one of the books that has done the best on the show, Marriage Vacation, has been published in real life. Younger fans know that this has been a wildly dramatic storyline as the author of the book, Pauline, used to be married to Charles. And since Liza worked on the book and also dated Charles, things got complicated. Hilary Duff said no to playing Kelsey at first, but Darren Starr personally phoned her saying he wouldn't take no for an answer. According to Fame 10, Hilary Duff said no to playing Kelsey at first. This was because the show films in New York City and her residence is in Los Angeles. As the website explains, Starr, however, called her and said the role was only hers and he wouldn't take no for an answer. We can't see anyone else playing Kelsey either. Darren Starr thinks that fans should be binge-watching this show instead of watching it weekly. One of the joys of being a TV fan is being able to binge watch according to Insider.com. Darren Starr thinks that fans should binge watch the show instead of watching it weekly. Starr was quoted saying, I kind of feel like this show is the perfect show to be binge watched. It's currently designed that you want to watch them one after another, hopefully in an addictive way. Sutton Foster thinks Liza has a lot in common with her previous character, Michelle, on Bunheads. 
BuzzFeed News quoted Foster saying, What was great about Michelle Sims on Bunheads is she was holding on to her lost youth, and so I understood what that was. In a way, with this character, playing someone who was revisiting her youth was something that I could understand and wanted to explore. The show bases its novels on real runs. P is for Pigeon is inspired by H is for Hawk. L.com says that when fans are watching Younger and see the novels that are characters on publishing, those are based on real ones. Diana, for example, really championed a book called P is for Pigeon, and it's based on a real book called H is for Hawk. We can't wait to see what books appear on the show in the seventh season. And some of you may already know that. And Sutton Foster loves that her character cares about her career. According to Us Weekly, Sutton Foster knows that the love of stories on Younger are important, but she also loves that her character cares about her career. She was quoted saying, One of the reasons that I love this show so much is that she's very focused on work. I mean, why is she doing all of this in the first place? It's really to reclaim her career and find a voice for herself in the workplace again. You know, I haven't watched Younger at all, but now that I'm reading it being like it should be one of those series you should binge watch, maybe I should. And I mean, since now it's on the final season, I mean, I probably could find it streaming somewhere and I'd have, not that I need a new show to watch, but Hilary Duff is awesome. You know, I grew up loving her as a kid and Sutton Foster is also a really great actress. So I mean... Yeah, why not? Maybe I maybe I will, you know, if it's a good show to be binge watched, might be might be worth a shot. So with that being said, that concludes our sitcoms. And if we ever do sitcoms again, it's going to be in a greatest hits format and that'll be some way down the long as uh, some way down the line as I have, you know, of course many other categories that we're focusing on. But coming up soon, I'm going to have the teen drama series. Also got family dramas. We got the Netflix original series. And now currently we're voting on reality shows. So it'll be a good time. But I think we definitely can work on a package deal of sitcoms. I just have to think of how I'm going to work it what I'm going to include. So it'll take some thinking, but I think we can really do it because a few people have actually asked me about it. And so I want to do what you guys want. So I definitely will work on that for the future. But until then, stay tuned for other episodes. Be kind to yourselves and each other and take care of yourselves. Stay safe and healthy and I will see you soon. Bye.